Hello, this is Dr. Doug Wyatt, and this is the podcast series Considering Christianity as a Scientist, and we are continuing with podcast number five, Considering the Teachings of Jesus. We are going to begin our discussion of the teachings of Jesus, starting with his Sermon on the Mount, one of his first recorded major teaching events, and we are going to consider it across all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to discuss the Sermon on the Mount in a series of three podcasts, this being the first. I hope you enjoy it. Many of you have read these Gospels, but I hope to add some thought uh, for you in your overall context of how to interpret and how to believe. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, was an apostle. He was a tax collector. He was an early apostle, very early disciple for Christ. And he is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. Uh, He was educated. uh, He was primarily writing to Greek-speaking Jews. So in a way, Matthew was writing to the educated of his day. Mark, a, a very short gospel, his name was actually John Mark. He was also a disciple and he traveled with Peter and is thought to record the thoughts of the Apostle Peter in his gospel. Then he traveled a little bit with Paul and Barnabas, other big names in the New Testament as they spread the gospel to the Roman world. So he had some insight into what was being taught and what were the the actual teachings of Jesus. After Mark comes the gospel of Luke. Luke was a physician. He was a highly educated person, trained in the medical practices of his day. And he was actually writing to an individual, uh, trying to explain to him the teachings of of Jesus, but the individual's name was Theophilus. But as he wrote to Theophilus, he intended for this letter to Theophilus to be distributed to a wider audience. And he also wrote in Greek. Luke possibly was non-Jewish. He may have been a Gentile, and he was a friend of Paul. So he had insight into the teachings of Paul. He had insight into the teachings of Jesus. So Luke was a friend of Paul as well, but a highly educated physician. Then there's the Gospel of John. John is a little bit different than the other three Gospels, but records much of the same information. John was also an apostle, and it was probably written a bit later than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's some some discussion about that, and probably as John was an older man, he does list the eyewitness accounts of his time with Jesus. He lists and describes some of the events of Jesus' life and his interaction with people and with the rulers and leaders of the day, and was probably written to a Greek audience to help them understand and increase and support their beliefs.
Prior to the Sermon on the Mount and in the life of Jesus, he had been speaking routinely in various synagogues in small towns and the cities of the area and had developed a name for himself. He had actually been excluded from some synagogues for his teachings and he had been accepted into other synagogues for his teachings. So he was developing a reputation as a teacher, a rabbi. And as he continued doing this, he also developed a following. He had people who would follow him from place to place to hear him teach. So he had early disciples even before he became known or suspected to be the Christ. And people were listening to what he said. He was a person who would walk into a room and be noticed. He was a person who people would see or hear uh, about being somewhere and they would say, oh, Jesus is there. Let's go hear Jesus teach. And so he had developed a popular following, both positive and negative. There were teachers of the Jewish religion that did not like what he taught. And so they were pursuing him just to argue. Jesus knew about John the Baptist. And if you remember, John and Jesus were actually cousins. So Jesus sought out John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a few months older than Jesus. And John had developed a large following as a wandering prophet who was baptizing people by water in the Jordan River and was teaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John also taught that there would be someone who followed him who would be much greater than he that would teach and preach the kingdom of heaven and bring redemption and save all of mankind. Jesus went to John to be baptized. And Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. We will talk a little bit about that in a, a subsequent podcast. But when Jesus, the Gospels record, that when Jesus was baptized, heaven opened and God spoke to Jesus and was heard by the people around that this was his son whom he loves and is well pleased. That changed the entire prospect of Jesus's teaching perception within his disciples and within the region. After Jesus's baptism, he is recorded as going into the wilderness to be tempted. 40 days and 40 nights of temptation, uh, fasting, hunger, temptation under weakness. And the Bible records that his adversary, the devil, Satan, whatever name you prefer to use for that representative of everything that is against Jesus and against mankind, tempted Jesus several times and that Jesus did not yield, did not agree to the temptation, no matter his physical state or mental state of weakness. Shortly after that, the Gospels record that John was arrested. Now, John was a very vocal person. If he were alive today, you would hear him in all the media sources, doing what he was doing at the time, teaching what he was teaching at the time. And he was very vocal about corruption within the Jewish royal household, particularly related to 
some adultery and internal kingly intrigue in the royal Jewish household. Drove them crazy. But yet they were afraid of him because he was equivalent to the Jewish version of an Old Testament prophet. So they thought he spoke for God. He did speak for God. And eventually they had him arrested. Something to consider is that the Jews only had some internal regulatory capability. They were under the thumb of Rome. They were a Roman province. They only maintained their religious hierarchy and their religious policing ability within the Jewish faith. The Romans had all political authority in the land. So for the Jews to arrest somebody, they could do it under temple law or they could ask the Romans to do it. So when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he went to a different area so as to avoid the conflict and the uproar of that arrest. It just was not his time to become involved in political intrigue such as that. Jesus left the area around the Jordan where John and he were both happened to be, and he went into Galilee. The Gospel of Matthew states it this way, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So, in a nutshell, after Jesus' baptism, after the arrest of John, after the annunciation by God at Jesus' baptism, Jesus began to preach at that time, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Before Jesus had spoken and taught in the local areas, in, in the local synagogues, and was a teacher, he upped his game at this point in his career and in the process of him proving himself, teaching himself, showing himself to be the Christ. If Jesus had just remained a teacher and a rabbi, he would never have been as hated by the Jewish teachers of the day. As Jesus was leaving the area of Nazareth and walking by the Sea of Galilee, we have the first recording of him choosing his disciples. While, and while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Walking a little bit further from there, the Bible records, and going on from there, he saw two bro other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Then he started traveling about all through the region. And the Bible records, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is following his group of people that traveled wherever he went became enormous. He could not help but be noticed not only by the Jewish authorities and feared by the Jewish authorities, but also by the Roman authorities as well. It is important to understand the area where Jesus was teaching and where the crowds that he had were developing. It was not as much of a backwater or backwards area as we are often led to believe. The Sea of Galilee was very popular with both the Jews and the Romans. Where Jesus was teaching was on the major north-south and east-west trade routes uh, between the Far East and the Near East, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, between the southern uh, cities of Roman occupation and the northern cities of Roman occupation. And the Bible primarily mentions the names of towns where Jesus did various things that were Jewish towns. But almost all of these towns had a Roman presence as well. And the Roman resort and business commercial centers of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee and Ptolemaeus on the Mediterranean Sea were routinely tra traversed between those two cities by the Romans and by other international travelers. So Jesus would have been known not only to the Romans and the Jews, but all of the various nationalities that were traversing that area for trade and other business. So it was in this area of international transportation and business, as well as a tremendous amount of historical Jewish history, that Jesus began his teaching and his final ministry. It's important to understand that setting. The number of men, women, children, tradespeople, politicians, soldiers, that would have gathered when Jesus began to teach is unknown, but they are described as crowds, large crowds. So the total number of people listening to him could have been immense. So there was a very large crowd of people following Jesus. He saw the crowd. He sensed that they wanted to hear him teach. They were apparently in a lower, uh, flatter area, and so he walked up the side of a mountain so as to get to an elevated place where he could teach them. It was very typical of the day for teachers to sit, and their disciples, their followers, their students would sit around their feet. You've probably seen this in movies or in stories about the Greek teachers who would sit and their students would sit around them while, the, while they had class or while they were being taught. It was, it was common for the day to do this. So the book of Matthew records that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him.
Well, everybody else of those that were following him were all disciples, and so they would have sat, view this as a large semicircular area. Uh, that's how I view it in my mind, of Jesus sitting at the center of this semicircular area, and there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that could possibly have been listening to him. Well, let's consider who might have been in that crowd. He would have had followers that were his students. They were traveling with him wherever he went to learn from him. There would have been people that were following him just to hear what he had to say. Maybe they had not heard him before. There would have been people who he had healed who would follow him just to see what might happen next. There would be opportunistic people following him, uh, both good and bad. There would have been merchants possibly following the crowd to sell food, to sell drink, to sell clothing, whatever. Uh, vendors, if you will. There would have been other teachers, other people who uh, taught or other people who had positions of authority who were tracking Jesus, who wanted to be around him to understand what was going on and to legitimately understand what he was teaching. There would have been political people, people who had some role in managing and regulating people and the government just because the crowds were so large they would have been there to see what was going on and to make sure things stayed in hand. There would have been Roman authorities there. No large crowd in that area where there was so much foot traffic, animal traffic, trading, trading traffic, goods and merchandise would have not had some sort of Roman police, Roman political interaction. So there would have been Romans there. And as you know, the Roman army at the time was not all people of Latin descent. They had people from all over the Roman territories that were now part of their army. So there could have been many multiple nationalities as part of the Roman political system, as part of the Roman army. There would also have been zealots in that crowd people following Jesus because they believed he was going to be the future Messiah and at the time they believed the Messiah was going to bring back the glory of Israel that existed under David and Solomon throw out everybody else and have a purely Jewish kingdom that's what the zealots wanted to reestablish and they were forming an internal army sort of a resistance movement to the Romans so there would have been zealots following Jesus whose agenda was not to understand the philosophical, religious, positive teachings of Jesus, but were waiting for some sort of insight as to when he was going to become the new king, the new political leader. They wanted to fight. So there would have been zealots in the crowd as well. There would be an incredible diversity in that crowd. Uh, not just of attitude and belief, but of nationality, intellectual capability, history and knowledge, 
everything. Tremendously diverse crowd. So we know Jesus was up uh, on the side of a mountain, maybe on the top. We know that he was looking out at the crowd and the crowd were sitting around him at his feet, that he was sitting when he was teaching. And I envision Jesus as looking across that crowd and discerning what those various groups of people needed to hear. Every teaching of Jesus applied universally, but he very often taught directed specifically at a person or a group or a certain attitude of the time. And he taught in such a way that that specific teaching directed at a specific event or a specific attitude had multiple meanings and applied across humanity. Remarkable teaching. Remarkable teaching. When he began to teach, he began with a series of statements of blessings about the people that were there. These are typically called the Beatitudes, and thousands, millions of sermons and books and things like that have been written on the Beatitudes. I want to talk just a, a brief minute about those. The word that's used as when Jesus starts this teaching is blessed. Sometimes you hear it split among two syllables. Blessed are the poor. Some people use one syllable. Blessed are the poor. So that word bless is worth considering just a moment. The word blessed means so much more than what you initially think it does. It means mirth, joy, happiness, totally saturated feeling of feelings of goodness. It means that you are beyond yourself with a feeling of goodwill. It means that you are completely immersed in a state of joy of happiness. It's such a large word. People tend to downplay that word because we use it so often. Blessed are you. Go with my blessing. It's such a big word to be such a small composition of letters. And this is what Jesus were tell was telling these people, not just that, oh yeah, you'll be happy if you do this, or yeah, you'll be good. Don't worry about it. It means more than that. Every possible concept of happiness, joy, mirth, a feeling of goodness and light, a feeling of everything is in the best possible state that of goodness that your mind can imagine is what this word blessed means. And so... Uh, <laughs> In a way, I view the word blessed as sort of an acronym for a feeling of saturated perfection. 
So think about that when Jesus is using this word blessed because he used this word deliberately when he was speaking with these people. So he, he's looking across the crowd and he sees various groups. And I believe that he's looking at these various groups when he speaks and states these Beatitudes. So let's think about the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A lot of meaning in these very few words. What does poor in spirit mean? Well, you know, we know what it means when we say, man, I'm depressed, my spirits are low. I'm seeking something that did not happen or does not exist, and I just don't know what to do about it. I think what Jesus is saying is that plus a lot more. In all the subsequent teachings of Jesus and in all the subsequent teachings of his apostles and disciples, we are taught that God exists as a spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. That all the teachings that we see of Jesus and his disciples encourage our spirit encourage us to think higher, greater, and beyond where we are, to understand that we are spiritual beings, not just physical beings. And I think Jesus is saying, and there, these people were concerned about their politics, their government, their status. Some were poor, some were hungry. People were seeking things more than what they had or what they existed at the time. And when I believe when he's saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say yours is the world. He said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everybody who is seeking a greater spiritual level, good for you, because you are the guys that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he started out his conversation by saying, seek the spirit because you're poor in spirit now. Continually seek the Spirit of God, and yours is the kingdom of heaven. I can't say it enough. When Jesus taught, he taught multidimensionally. Every statement he made crosses all of time and all of space. It's remarkable. I think he looked across the crowd and he saw groups of people or a family that had lost someone. Uh, they were in mourning. Someone had died. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But that statement means so much more. If these people are sad because they had lost something in their lives that separate them from God, they had lost something in life that separated them from their Jewish heritage, they had lost something in life that they realized they were missing, some sense of happiness, some, some sense of accomplishment, and they were sad about that. They were mourning. It was not just mourning about the loss of a loved one or a family member or something like that. It was more than that because blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and comforted is made aware that there was a resolution, that there was a solution that there was something that would make them lose that sense of mourning. 
Jesus was basically saying in the first beatitude, in the first blessing, if you're seeking the Spirit, you're going to make it to heaven. And then he says, if you know you're missing something, whether that's the, whatever, whatever concept of mourning that is, you will be comforted because you're going to learn what that is. We're going to teach you and it's going to be given to you. And in a way, a lot of, a lot of people who study these words believe that Jesus was actually here early prognosticating his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. He would comfort everybody. Jesus then looks around this group of people and says something that I personally have always had trouble with interpreting this and have spent a lifetime realizing what I believe this now means. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, let's think about that. The first thing that's always interested me is inheriting the earth. Well, Jesus teaches his entire life about inheriting the kingdom of heaven, joining God, joining him in heaven, our spiritual nature and our souls living with them for eternity. So what's this big deal about inheriting the earth? It's both a positive and a negative in my opinion. The Greek word for meek in this case, it's more than just what most people think when you hear the word meek. It is a word that means in control, subservient, in a servant position, restrained, acknowledging others in superiority to yourselves. So he's He's not saying necessarily to be meek. You know, sometimes we, we talk about people being weak and simple and gentle, and they are, they are the meek. I think Jesus is looking at all these people across this crowd, everybody from the zealots and Roman soldiers to those who are trying to develop themselves in the world as in whatever occupation they choose, he's telling them, restrain yourselves, keep yourself under control, and you will get what you want. You know, don't abuse people. Don't be haughty. Be deliberate, controlled, subservient, and you will get what you want on this earth. That is a eventual, forward-looking statement, at least I believe, of what Christianity would become. We are not to be arrogant. We are not to be pompous. But we can be strong. We can be deliberate. But we must be restrained and righteous in what we do. And we can accomplish things on this earth. But in a way, there's a, there's a double entendre in this statement. If you're just going to be a meek person and you're not going to stand up and be a Christian, do what Christianity, do what my teachings say, then, you know, you will inherit the earth. But remember, the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. So there is a dichotomy in these first three statements of how we should act, how we should be, how we should do. And then the fourth, fourth blessing supports these previous three. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, we all understand hunger and we all understand thirst. They are so fundamental to our physical being that we cannot deny that. When you are hungry, there is no stronger physical desire than to feed yourself. When you are thirsty, there is no stronger physical desire. Being a person who has gone through survival training, I understand these feelings at some of the highest levels. You get to a point where these thoughts consume you. I am so hungry. I am so thirsty that you are physically, mentally, emotionally doing nothing else but trying to satisfy those needs. Jesus is saying, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. What is righteousness? Well, a lot of people use the word righteousness with a very churchy, do-goody type attitude. That's okay. But righteousness means more than that. Righteousness means an overwhelming desire to love God, to, to follow the teachings of Jesus, to throw yourself at Jesus' feet in learning and in subservience and in belief, accept him, but it means being a good person, having this continual desire to do those teachings, to follow those teachings, to be a righteous person. You do not have to be a very high religious authority to be a righteous person. You do not have to be a cleric to be a righteous person. Righteousness is the overwhelming desire to follow the teachings that we are given in the process of being as good a person as we can be. This is the end of podcast number five, which is part one of our consideration of Christianity as a scientist and our discussion of considering the teachings of Jesus. And we will continue in our next podcast. Thank you.